Well, perhaps some of you, like me, can remember watching some of the Rocky movies when you were younger. You might remember that one of Rocky's most intimidating opponents was a boxer by the name of Clubber Lang, played by the actor Mr. T. And in one of the pre-fight scenes, Clubber Lang was being interviewed by an interviewer who asked him what his prediction was for the upcoming fight. He said, prediction? And the interviewer affirmed to him that that's indeed what he was looking for. He thought about it. He paused. He looked at the camera and he said, pain. And that's perhaps what some people will feel when they go to a teaching on the doctrine of total depravity. That's what they might anticipate. They anticipate the preacher pummeling, thumping, and bashing them with Bible verses about man's inherent sinfulness. They're hoping for the bell to ring. They're hoping for somebody to just ring the bell so that they can get on to something that's a little bit more lighthearted and encouraging. I do think, contrary to that belief, the doctrine of total depravity can actually be very encouraging. I think for starters, it brings clarity to a number of subjects that are often tainted with the haze of confusion. Is mankind basically good? If mankind is inherently depraved, how do you explain good deeds done by unbelievers? Why is this world in the mess that it's in? The study of this subject can bring clear answers to those kind of questions, which I think in itself is invigorating for Christians. Now, the second thing I think is when you study the doctrine of total depravity, and this is the way it is with other theological subjects as well, it provides Christians with an opportunity to read or study or memorize verses of Scripture that they might take for granted, might not be too familiar with. Studying the doctrine of total depravity, I think, assists with that. And third... And this is by no means comprehensive. This isn't a comprehensive list. I think that it can provide Christians with protection against pride. It could fan the flame of humility. And it could help Christians better understand the greatness of the grace that saved them. So let's start with defining total depravity. Total depravity. That is the T in the acronym TULIP. This, like other words in the acronym can be misunderstood. It's liable to misunderstanding. So let me tell you what we do not mean when we say total depravity. We do not mean that the image of God has been erased in man. That image has been marred by sin, but it still remains. We do not mean that mankind no longer has a conscience that will either accuse them or excuse them. And when we say total depravity, we do not mean that men and women are as depraved as they can be. To use a popularly used example, think of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler oversaw the murdering of millions of people, yet he did not murder his own mother. So when we talk about the doctrine of total depravity, we don't mean those things. We don't mean complete or utter depravity. What we do mean is that the totality of who a person is, every facet of who we are as human beings has been tainted by, corrupted by, and affected by sin. That's what we mean by total depravity. The will has been affected by sin. The body has been affected by sin. The mind has been affected by sin. Total depravity means the totality of who we are as human beings has been tainted, corrupted by, affected by sin. Now, because total depravity is liable to misunderstanding, other options have been set forth Um, in place of that designation, in place of total depravity. Two common substitute expressions are radical corruption and radical depravity. Now, when we say the word radical, 
We don't mean it in the sense that um, dictionaries like Oxford note the slang to be. We don't mean radical in the sense of excellent corruption or fantastic corruption. We're not using the word radical like Ninja Turtles. What we do mean is that word radical comes from a Latin word, radix, which means root. So what we do mean is that mankind has been affected right down to the core of who he is. The core of man has been tainted and corrupted by sin. So if you ever hear someone say, you know, deep down inside, we're all really good people. You know that person doesn't subscribe to the doctrine of total depravity. Deep down and all around, we are sinful by nature. Um, We are not inherently good. Now, another term often used in place of or alongside of total depravity is total inability. Total inability. This highlights, I think, one of the consequences of our depravity, namely the moral inability to choose that which pleases God and the spiritual incapacity to rightly embrace that which has been revealed by God. I'll say that again. When we say total inability, it highlights one of the consequences of total depravity, namely our moral inability in our unregenerate state to choose that which pleases God and the spiritual incapacity to rightly embrace that which is revealed by God. See, now, in the New Testament, there is a lot of can and cannot language. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, that no one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws them. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. In Romans chapter 8, verse 8, the Apostle Paul wrote that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul said that the natural man cannot know and understand the things of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, the Apostle Paul wrote that no one can say that Jesus is Lord. The implication is truly say, mean, and believe that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So in short, you can see that our depravity has severely affected our moral ability and our spiritual capacity. There is no capacity in ourselves, in our fallen state, to choose life. Reason being, because we are spiritually dead. Now if you start thinking about this, one of the questions that can come to mind is, where does this depravity come from? Does it emerge from our choices as though to say, look, there isn't depravity in a person until they choose sin. And when they choose sin, then inherent sinfulness comes, then depravity comes. No, we are born with the totality of who we are being affected by and corrupted by sin. Note this, we are not born morally neutral. We are born inherently sinful. But our depravity doesn't go back simply to our immediate parents. Our depravity goes back to our first parents, particularly Adam. Romans 5.19, the first half of the verse states that by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So we inherited a sin nature. We are by nature sinners by virtue of our descending from our federal head, Adam. Now some will say, well, that's not fair. I mean, Adam sinned in the garden. 
I didn't sin in the garden, so why do I have to bear an inherently sinful nature? I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Adam did it. Well, for starters, I would say we know that in sports, that if a player on a team commits a penalty, the whole team will then be penalized. We understand that. And Adam was our federal head. He represented us, even as the last Adam, Jesus Christ, represented us. Remember, the second half of Romans 5.19 says, By one man's obedience, speaking of Christ, many were made righteous. But going back to Adam, you do not have to live with perpetual frustration against him, as though if you were to see him in heaven, and I think there are hints in Scripture, it's not, in, it's not explicitly stated, but I think there are some hints in Genesis 3, you know, God clothing and the animal sacrifice that clothed Adam and so on to, to suggest that he's there. You don't have to get frustrated at him if you were to see him in heaven. One, that's not the behavior of heaven anyway. You wouldn't expect to act like that. But two, Adam not only represented you, Adam did exactly what you would have done. Whereas the last Adam, Jesus Christ, did what we could never do. He lived the perfect life that we can never live, and he died in our place. Adam, however, did exactly what we would have done. How do I know that? Because we were, as it were, in Adam. We were in his loins, as it were. So Adam represented us, and he made the choice that we would have made if we were there. But I want to be clear about this. It's important to know that depravity, mankind's depravity, was not part of God's original creation design. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 31, first half of the verse, we're told, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So in God's original creation, in the first six days of creation, he looks at everything he made, and he said it was all very good. It was after Adam sinned, that Adam became sinful, and then subsequently his posterity would be sinful as well. I think we get a little bit of a hint of this in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. In Genesis 5, verse 3, we're told that Adam bore a son in his image and likeness. Thus, I think David's statements in Psalm 51, verse 5 could be said by all people. David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. We are all, to use language from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we are all by nature children of wrath. You even see this in Proverbs, in places you wouldn't even expect to find it. Proverbs 22, verse 15, first half. Foolishness, or folly, is bound up in the heart of the child. Again, we're not born morally neutral. We have a predisposition towards sin because we are by nature Sinners. Now, this is important. To introduce the next part of our study, I want to ask the following question. Do you think that there is any difference in the will of Adam pre-fall versus the will of his descendants post-fall? Or to put it another way, do you think there's any difference in the will of a person who didn't have a sin nature in the mind of a person who didn't have a sin nature, in the heart of a person who didn't have a sin nature, like Adam, do you think there's any difference in his will versus the will of those who have a sin nature, the mind and heart of those who have a sin nature? I think the answer, when you look through the scriptures, is a resounding yes. Adam was not tainted by a sinful nature. Adam's will was truly free. When you hear people talk about free will, 
To be sure, human beings like us, human beings in their unregenerate state, freely choose things every day. Interestingly, to use examples from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, and I'll come back to human beings in a minute, you look at the examples that are used there. The pig wallows in the mire freely. Nobody's forcing the pig to wallow in the mire. Why does the pig do that? Because that's what a pig does. It's acting in accordance with its nature. The dog goes back to its own vomit. Why does the dog do that? Is somebody forcing the dog to do that? No, the dog is freely choosing that because the dog is acting in accordance with its nature. Human beings freely choose sin and freely reject light, preferring darkness in their unregenerate state because we are by nature sinners. So when a person who is not regenerated chooses those things, they are choosing them freely but they're choosing in accordance with their inherited sinful nature. Now, the scripture uses far more than two metaphors to paint the picture of the effects of total depravity for us. That's where the doctrine of total depravity comes in. You'll see that an overview of this doctrine demonstrates the manifold effects of our pervasive depravity. And we'll start here. The results of our depravity and the biblical evidence for it. First, mankind is not basically good. You've probably heard it. You may have said it. You will likely hear somebody else say it again soon. He's a really good guy. She's, she's really good. Well, if you're speaking about an unregenerate person in their natural state, that doesn't line up with what the scriptures present to us. The assessment of the scriptures is the opposite of that. Now, one of the things I want you to see is how this point is uniquely emphasized in the scriptures. It's mentioned in Psalm 14. It's basically repeated in Psalm 53. And then it's basically repeated multiple times in Romans 3. So first, beginning in Psalm 14, listen to verses 2 and 3. The Lord, or Yahweh, looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Psalm 53, the language is very similar. Verses 2 and 3. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. And the reason why there is none who does good, no, not one, is because we are not by nature good. Now, yes, mankind, human beings, can do horizontal acts of charity and human kindness towards other human beings. But outside of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, even those actions are tainted. Why? Because they're not done for the glory of God. Why? Well, the principle of Romans 14, 23, whatever is not of faith is of sin. Not to mention, you could draw language from Isaiah 64, verse 6, whatever the motivations are, they lack being what they ought to be, and it's as though our supposed righteousness is really as filthy rags. Now, one of the things I want you to know is that the universal indictment that you see in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 isn't just limited to the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. This is God's assessment when he looks at humanity. You just look at the language in those Psalms. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, and so on. 
But the universal description and the universal indictment is made even clearer when you look at the way Paul uses these texts in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9, the Apostle Paul states that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. But he proceeds to quote from numerous Old Testament passages to support that statement. As it is written, he says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. Now note that, none who understands. So this speaks to fallen man's, unregenerate man's incapacity to understand spiritual things. He continues and he says, there is none who seeks after God. And that might come as a shock to some people. Some people who even came to Christ might think, wait a minute, I was seeking God. I was looking for the truth. And one of the things you come to find in the scriptures very clearly is that you sought because you were sought after. The reason why you were seeking God is because God had sought after you. We'll see that, I think, clearly communicated a little bit later on. But unregenerate man, as we're told here, will not seek after God. What will unregenerate man do? He will do what Adam did after he had sinned. He would seek to hide from God as opposed to running to God. Paul goes on in verse 12 and he says, They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now he goes on and he gives a descriptive nature. He unpacks in descriptive terms the nature of man's speech. Beginning at verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. It's a pretty vivid picture. If you were to imagine a tomb that's uncovered, one of the things that you would note if such an occasion you were to actually experience is that a foul stench would come in light of the rotting corpse being in the tomb. So Paul is basically saying, as he's going through and and quoting these Old Testament texts, he's saying this is what unregenerate man's speech is like. It's like an open tomb that just lets out things that are rotting. He goes on and he says, With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. He says, whose mouth is full of cursing. That Greek word there carries the idea of wishing the worst for someone, basically uttering a malediction over someone's life. He goes on and he says, and bitterness. The Greek word for bitterness speaks of bitter hatred. Could be a public display of that. He goes on, moving from the mouth, he now moves to the feet. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. In other words, fallen man in his unregenerate state without the restraints of common grace, without the restraints of a kind of fear of punishment and so on, fallen man would be so quick to run in the direction of harm. He says, destruction and misery are in their ways. As though to say the unregenerate man will leave a wake of destruction where he goes. He says, in the way of peace they have not known. And a minimum here we're talking about the way in which Unregenerate man will break relationships and so on. And then he gets to what might be the very root of all of this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So in our natural state, we lack reverence for God, a fear of God. Fear of man may be present. There may be fear of people, fear of consequences, fear of this and fear of that. But there isn't a holy spirit wrought fear of God. Next, Mankind cannot, apart from regeneration, come to Christ. 
This is Jesus' own testimony from John chapter 6, verse 44. He said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. The word can, as R.C. Sproul has noted, implies ability. Fallen men and women cannot, of their own accord, come to Jesus because by nature we love darkness rather than light, to use language from John 3, verse 19. We cannot come, not because we are not permitted to, we're called to. We do not come because we don't want to come. Nonetheless, Jesus' statement on the total inability aspect of total depravity is clear. Note that, John 6, 44, first half of the verse, no one can come. Now, when he says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, please do not misunderstand that word draws as to connote some sort of wooing. As though God is just kind of, you know, kind of, kind of ushering you along saying, come on, you could do it. Just choose Christ. A small window of prevenient grace has been opened to you. And with this opportunity that you have, just reach out. You know you want more. Just choose life right now. You could do it. That's not what's connoted in that word. That word is used eight times in the New Testament. Two times it's used in a kind of general sense where you can't get exactly what it means from the context. Here, John chapter 6, verse 44, and John chapter 12, verse 32, used in the kind of general way. But when we look at the other six times in which it's used, we say, okay, this is picturing something far different than wooing. It's used one time to speak of Peter drawing his sword from his sheath. John chapter 18, verse 10. Two times... Two times, it speaks of fish being in a net and drawn out of the water. You see that in John 21, verse 6 and verse 11. Three times, it speaks of individuals being dragged. Acts 16, verse 19. Acts 21, verse 30. James chapter 2, verse 6. So what you see when you look at how this word is used is that it regularly speaks of a one-sided, monergistic, dragging, pulling kind of drawing. It's not akin to waving a biscuit before a dog. It is akin to drawing a bucket of water out of a well. I think the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel illustrates this. Theologically, in the first two parables we see there, and then experientially in the last parable. I'll explain what I mean. In Luke 15, we see first the parable of the shepherd that goes out to seek the sheep that was lost. And the sheep does not contribute to his or her, uh, to the sheep's being found. The sheep doesn't contribute to that. The sheep is just sought after, picked up, and carried home. It's a monergistic, one-sided kind of pulling, you might say. In the second parable, we have the woman who loses the coin or the lost coin, and the woman goes and she finds the coin, and the coin does not contribute to its being found. It's just found by the woman. But then we have the third parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And there you see the prodigal son who leaves his father's home, goes and wastes his inheritance in riotous living, and then all of a sudden what happens? He comes to his senses, and then he goes back to the father. See, experientially, that's what it feels like oftentimes for us when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like, what am I doing? Why am I living in this state of rebellion? I should go to the God that I've heard preached about. I should go to the gospel. But what's really happening theologically behind the scenes is that you were sought. You were like the sheep that was found. You were like the coin that was found. You didn't just come to your senses on your own. You didn't exercise the supposed act of your free will that was supposedly not in bondage to your sinful nature. You were sought after and carried 
You were one that the Father brought right to the Son. If you go back earlier in John's Gospel, John makes it clear that being born again is not something that's initiated by the human will. I mean, you could see this in John chapter 3 when Jesus speaks about the new birth in John chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. But I think you see it rather explicitly in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John wrote, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Another implication of our depravity. Mankind will not submit to God's law and cannot please God. These points are clearly communicated in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. The Apostle Paul there wrote, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. By the way, he's saying that in light of Romans 8, 6, where he said to be carnally minded is death. So picking up again at verse 7, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So note this. A carnal mind is not simply the passing disposition of an unregenerate, unbelieving person. It is the ongoing disposition of such a person. When you're not in the carnal mind, you're in a different sphere of life. If you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul tells the Christians there in Rome that you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. So this isn't just a passing disposition for an unbeliever. This is the ongoing state, the ongoing disposition. And Romans chapter 8, verse 8 makes the consequences of this clear. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Is repenting of sin pleasing to God? Yes. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Not of their own volition, not unless they be born again. Is believing in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins pleasing to God? Yes, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now you would see this in light of other New Testament texts as well. Don't forget, you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 and 26, and you see that God is the one who grants repentance. God grants it. You see it in Acts chapter 11 as well. You see that Paul told the Philippians, for to you it was granted not only to believe in Christ, it was granted to them, but to suffer for his sake. So these are things that fallen man cannot do in his fallen state. You would not expect an unregenerate person to throw off his or her propensity to reject light because we all by nature love darkness. It's kind of like the, the pig in 2 Peter chapter 2. You wouldn't expect a pig to throw off its propensity to wallow in a mug because it's a pig, and that's what pigs do. I do think this is very important because the more that we understand how sinful we are by nature, the more we can appreciate the grace that has saved us. More about that in a moment. A few more implications of our depravity. Mankind cannot truly understand the things of God apart from spiritual regeneration. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 
this verse speaks to the lack of capacity that we have by nature to understand the things revealed by the Spirit. There is a sense in which the wisdom of God would sound to us like Charlie Brown's teacher sounds in those old Charlie Brown cartoons. Wah, 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 wah. See, now you may, you may understand it, though, to a degree, right? You may say, okay, no, I, I get those concepts. I get the concept of the Trinity. I get the concept of substitutionary atonement. You may get those in your natural state, but you won't rightly perceive them or appraise them without the work of the Holy Spirit. And in many cases, some of us can attest to not even understanding the things of God, thinking of them as just simply foolishness. And that's what the preaching of the gospel is, isn't it, to those who are perishing? It is described as foolishness. I mean, there are other texts that talk about our, um, the implications of our sinfulness on our minds. Ephesians 4, 17 talks about the futility of our thinking in our natural state, that we have a darkened understanding. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says that the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. He's blinded eyes and minds and so on. Another implication of our depravity is mankind by nature has a bent towards evil. We see this also in John chapter 3, verse 19. John there writes, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. So the light of the world showed up in the flesh. And John is saying, they rejected it. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It's as though he's saying they would rather hold on to their sinful deeds than to cleave to the light, the Son of God who has come. Now, somebody might say, wait, that wasn't everybody, right? What about like Peter? What about the apostles? What about those who did believe? So, yeah, there were some who loved darkness rather than light, but that wasn't everybody. I would say, The Gospels are pretty clear that those who did believe, they believed by sovereign grace. Think of what Jesus said to Peter when Peter made that confession at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Think of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. No one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So everyone who did believe, yes, by nature they loved the darkness rather than light. But the Father revealed the truth of who Christ was to them. Christ revealed the truth of who he was and who the Father was to them. There are other verses that talk about our bent towards evil. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Using the example of apostates, these people who had a moral reformation outwardly, but they weren't regenerated inwardly. Peter writes of these men, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. This is key. But it happened... But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. 
He's saying they may have gotten washed up outwardly, but they didn't have a change of nature inwardly. Spiritual regeneration is needed. Again, man has a bent towards evil. You see that in Genesis chapter 4. Cain murders Abel so early on in the history of man. You see it in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. God looks at the earth, and he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Look at Romans chapter 3 again, verses 9 through 18, and you see that by nature we have a bent towards evil. Furthermore, the spiritual anatomy of man requires regeneration. Jeremiah 17.9, speaking of the heart, says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or incurably sick. Who can know it? The heart, our fallen hearts are in such a dire state. They are so dead. They are so deceitful that God promises in a new covenant that he's going to remove those hearts. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I think this is important for New Testament Christians to know, because sometimes New Testament Christians can quote Jeremiah 17, 9 like it's their life verse. Ah, my heart is just desperately wicked. It's incurably sick. Who can know it? If you are in Christ, you have a new nature. You are a new creation, and you have a new heart. Speaking of our anatomy, we are so fallen that we need to be born again. John chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. We are so fallen in our state. We are so dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, that we need to be raised up by the grace of God, Ephesians 2, 5. We are so corrupted in our natural state, we need to be made new creations in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Unregenerate men and women are described as being enslaved to sin. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So I go through all of that to give us a little bit of a synopsis of how our sinfulness has affected us, how it's affected our thinking, how we've been affected in our behavior in light of our thinking, in light of our nature, and so on. But now as we close um, this portion of our time, I want to just quickly call to attention the impact of this doctrine on Christian living. I do think the doctrine of total depravity can fan the flames of Christian humility. If you understand this doctrine and you know that apart from the grace of God, you would not have seen Christ, you'll be protected against judging those who are outside of Christ as though you just did more with the information presented to you than they did. As though you were wiser, you saw it, you got it, but they, they, they just don't get it. They're just not as wise as you were. They didn't exercise the volition that you exercised. You're just a little bit better than them because you exercised a volitional choice that they didn't. When you understand the doctrine of total depravity, you're like, no, I was dead. It's only the grace of God that woke me up. Fans the flames of humility, I think, and it protects the believer from pride. I do also think the doctrine of total depravity helps us understand our need for the means of grace. You're no longer a slave of sin. You're a new creation in Christ, but you know that you have a fallen nature, and you see how dangerous this fallen nature can be. Now, you have another principle at work in you. The Spirit of God is inside of you, so the, the Spirit wars against the flesh, and these, these, these two things are contrary and so on, but you know you need to... Apply the means of grace to your life. You need to hide God's word in your heart that you might not sin against him. You need to be given to prayer and fellowship and so on. 
And finally, I would say the doctrine of total depravity helps Christians better understand the greatness of God's grace. See, God's grace cannot be likened, and it should not be likened, to a man drowning in the ocean. And then somebody threw that man a life preserver in the gospel. And then this man, with an, with an act of his volitional will, maybe through the means of provenient grace, that window of opportunity opens for a minute, and then he stretches forth his hand, and he grabs the life preserver. That may be gracious. It's gracious of a man to throw the life preserver to the drowning man, but that does not well depict the grace of God. The grace of God is better depicted, better likened to the raising of a dead man to life. Like Lazarus, who was in the tomb and did not contribute to his being risen from the dead, he just simply heard the voice of Jesus, Lazarus, come forth. And what did Lazarus do? He woke up out of death and he came back to life. So when you come to Christ, when you hear the gospel being preached, what happened to you is that all of a sudden the grace of God, the spirit of God brought you into new life in that moment. Your eyes were open. The next thing you knew, you believed the gospel and your new life in Christ had begun. That's why this doctrine is so important. It helps you better understand how great God's grace is. You might say, well, it's gracious for somebody to throw a rope to somebody in the water. That's gracious. It's gracious for somebody to throw a life preserver to somebody in the water. Yeah, that's, that's gracious. It is. But God's grace is far greater than that. You and I were at the bottom of the ocean, as it were. We were dead. And then he raised us up to life through the gospel and through the work of his son. So yes, we share our inherent sinfulness by nature because of our union with Adam. Adam represented us. He did exactly what we would have done. But we are saved through the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did what we would have never done, what we could never do. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He died for our sins and he rose from the grave. And then by the grace of God, he woke us up and we've been brought to the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you for your word and the greatness of your grace. Help us, Lord, to better appreciate the grace that has saved us. Help us praise the glory of your grace and help us to better understand these truths so that we might be protected against pride, so that the flames of humility might be fanned, that we, Heavenly Father, might have your truth renew our minds and nourish our hearts and that we might grow in the grace of praising you for the grace that has saved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.